Romans 1, we're finishing Romans 1 tonight, Lord willing, we're going to look at verses 21 through 32. Warren Wiersbe introduces this portion of Romans by saying, the greatest judgment God can inflict upon us is to let us have our own way. We're going to see what happens when instead of receiving the witness of God, mankind rejects it and God lets us go our own way. And so let's look at verse 21 to set the tone. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Just a, a quick impromptu poll. How many of you say futile, and how many say futile? Where is the futile? Futile? That's pretty... Yeah, it, how many of you think of an alternative word, you know, so... All right. I never can get that right. And so it says here, although they knew God... This is a summary of the previous verses which taught us that God has given a witness of Himself to all men everywhere, both externally in creation and internally by putting eternity in our hearts. God's witness, we talked about this, it's not sufficient by itself for men to be saved by it alone, but it is enough for men to grope after God, to seek Him, and to be found of Him as He sees to it, that they receive a greater revelation of himself. Uh, Dr. Norman Geisler puts it like this. He says, Someone lost in the darkness of a dense jungle who sees one speck of light should go towards it. If any believer, excuse me, if any unbeliever truly sought God through general revelation, God would provide the special revelation sufficient for salvation. You know, um, I don't know how often you think about it or, or have been asked this. Uh, my mind all week has been dealing, we've been talking a bunch of the pastors with the subject of the gospel since, you know, it's out of Romans 1. And sometimes people say, well, what about the heathen who has never heard the gospel? Is that person uh, condemned? Well, of course, the, the answer to that is all of us are already condemned. I mean, everybody is, is a sinner on their way to hell. But the real question is, how can that person be saved without ever hearing the gospel? Uh, and and it's, a, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to go through the scriptures and to uh, come up with an answer for that. Um, the, there, there are two solid answers that evangelical Christians have given over the years. Uh, one that I would hold to because I think it's just more scriptural. Um, there are those, and, and they're Christians, and, and they're good guys, they believe that general revelation, and by general revelation we're talking about God's creation and the witness of conscience, that general revelation alone, uh, without a, the specific preaching of the gospel to an individual, uh, could be sufficient to save someone who seeks after God. And so the idea is kind of like from Acts 17, we quoted some of those verses where, you know, God's the one who scattered people around the planet. And he said, I did it with the hope that they would grope after me and find me. And so these guys, they believe, obviously, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was absolutely essential for salvation. No one gets to heaven except through Christ. But they would say there are still people who can get saved the way an Old Testament saint got saved without knowing the full revelation of God. Uh, and um, it's, it's a position, uh, it's, it's a weak position, it's based mostly just on the love and justice of God, and if you say that, then people immediately accuse you of universalism. They say, well, you're saying everybody's going to be saved. But no, you're not. 
you're saying that, you know, what Romans 1 seems to indicate at least, that there is a revelation of God in creation. Some people use the word nature, but we, hate, we don't like the word nature, do we? Nature seems so weird, you know. Create, God didn't create nature. He created, you know, he's the creator. And, and so um, anything, uh, you know, so anyway, there's that whole idea that, that they can be saved by general revelation alone. What I believe and what most evangelical Christians would believe is that a person who has general revelation and is responding to that, God will bring more light to that individual or to that nation uh, and bring them the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you say, well, how's God going to do that? Well, that's none of my business. That's, you know, one of the key ways he does it, of course, is by sending missionaries to those people. Um, but... Uh, so the bottom line is no one is without a witness. If people who have never heard about Jesus Christ, they still have the witness of creation and conscience. And the scripture indicates that if they will seek after that, then God will see to it that they get what we would call special revelation. Uh, could be in the form of visions or dreams. I mean, God is a big God. And again, not universalism. We do not believe that everyone will eventually be saved. You, you, there's a lot of talk about this today. Uh, you know, people are kind of, In fact, I just read a Barna poll where one, is it 40% or 20%, it's some high percent, let's say 25% to be conservative. It's a big percentage of born-again Christians, not just people who say they're Christians, but people who've had a born-again experience and, and claim that Jesus is the center of their life. At least 25% of them believe that in the end, everyone will be saved. Uh, from whatever religion and from every walk of life because God is a loving God. Uh, and so there is a movement in these last days towards this universalism. There's a lot of people talking about the fact that there's no hell. Well, how could God send someone to hell? Even good, solid evangelicals are starting to teach annihilationism. They, they say, well, you, you know, the truth is it doesn't matter if there's a hell or not because when unbelievers die they are just annihilated as if they never existed before. And so there's a lot of strange things going on out there. Uh, you know, so the answer to the question, what about the heathen who's never heard? If you're witnessing to somebody, the answer is, what's his name? And then people say, what? They go, yeah, I'm not talking to him, I'm talking to you. You know, you have heard, let's deal with you. And then maybe God wants you and I to go visit that guy. You know, I mean that, you know, so a lot of people, if they're just using it as an excuse, in other words, I don't want to get saved because God is unfair because, the, you know, the pygmy in Africa isn't hearing the gospel. Well, get over that. I mean, it, it, you know, but in a philosophical discussion, God has given a witness of himself and he will see to it that people get greater revelation as they seek after it. Uh, Cornelius is a good example from Scripture. Uh, he had some revelation of God to, you know, through his contact with the nation of Israel. Uh, he was a God-seeker, a God-fearing man. And what did God do? He, gave, uh, he told him to send for Peter, and then he gave Peter this crazy vision about going to meet with him. And Peter goes, and as he's just talking, the Holy Spirit falls upon the whole household, and they get saved. And so God can do big things you know, if there are those who seek after him. So I just want to be clear on that as we go through these scriptures. Uh, now, those who refuse this witness, those are the people we're going to be talking about tonight. Last week, we talked a lot about that witness, creation, conscience, who can get saved, and all of that. Now we're going to say, now, what about people who don't? The vast majority of people who... 
though God has put eternity in their hearts, they end up with idolatry in their hearts. Well, uh, it says they, first of all, do not glorify him as God. This means they will not have him as God rule over them. That's what it means. Uh, it's not just that they're not, you know, worshiping him the right way or giving him glory. It's, it's, it's that they throw off the rule of God. They don't want to be subordinate to God. And this takes us back to the original sinner and to original sin. Satan was the original sinner. In his pride, he desired what? To be like God rather than have God rule over him. Uh, there's a great line. It, it's not accurate, of course, and, and the whole idea of Satan ruling in hell is ridiculous. Hell is a place of punishment created for the devil. Not, it's not a kingdom where he rules. Uh, but it must, is it Dante's Inferno where uh, you know, Satan says to God, I would rather rule in hell than serve in heaven. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of the, the attitude that Satan had. He says, I, I want to be like God. I, I don't want to be subordinate to you. I want to be like you. Uh, and that pride uh, caused his fall and the fall of a third of the angels. It led to his temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They too desired to be like God, and in their pride they brought original sin into the human race. Next it says here that men become unthankful. Although God is the source of every good thing men possess, in failing to acknowledge his rule, you immediately become unthankful for his resources. In fact, you start to blame God for the state of things. Uh, unthankfulness is, uh, is, is, you know, sometimes the Bible throws things out and you think, wow, that, I, I would have never thought of that. I would, you know, there's, aren't there worse things than being unthankful? Uh, but if you're a parent... Uh, you know how this feels when you're doing every, your your whole life is for your children, right? I mean, you're just you know if you're a good mom, you're a good dad, you're living for your kids, you're laying your life down. If they only knew the troubles you had and what you're going through, and then they're unthankful for what they have. You know, it's not the right food, it's not the right color, it's not the right clothes, it's you know it's not the latest thing, and it's like, you know, it's it's one of the worst things really that that you can do to a parent is to be unthankful. Uh, and, and so God, you know, he says, hey, when you throw off my rule, then all of a sudden you decide you're unthankful for what I've done for you. In fact, you start blaming me for the state of affairs that you're in. Men become futile or futile in their thoughts. Since God ultimately gives everything meaning and purpose, when you reject his rule, then you speculate for yourself on the meaning and purpose of life. These various speculations are man's godless reasonings about his own nature and the nature of the universe. One author put it like this. He said, The mind devoid of God's truth has no way to discriminate between truth and falsehood, between right and wrong, between the significant and the trivial, between the truly beautiful and the monstrous, or between the ephemeral and the eternal. As he continues to follow his own wisdom, we're told his foolish heart is darkened. The light God has given is overcome by ever-increasing spiritual darkness. As Jesus said, for out of the darkened heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. Then in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes and he says, The whole drift towards modernism that has blighted the church and nearly destroyed its living gospel may be traced to an hour when men began to turn from revelation to philosophy. Revelation, God revealing himself, telling us about himself and about ourselves. 
uh, philosophy, man reasoning about himself apart from God, or at least apart from the full revelation of God. Uh, I remember when I studied philosophy and psychology at the University of California, Riverside, it all begins from the point of a rejection of biblical Christianity, and then you're left with, so what is the human condition? Uh, and people begin with, you know, uh, all the, the intellect that they can muster to come up with a position on what is, what is you know, why, do, why does mankind have the problems that it has? Uh, is it nature? You know, are they born that way? Is it nurture? And they have all of these different philosophies and psychologies that they spin out uh, in, in order to try and figure these things out. And psychology does provide a great example <clears throat> just from the point of view that when you study psychology, you're studying the speculations of godless men on the human psyche, on the human condition, on what makes you and I tick at a level that no one can understand but God. And they do all of this without reference to the description of man as fallen and in need of salvation. And then they proffer it as wisdom when in fact it can only be foolishness. Uh, if, if, you know, God says in Hebrews that he can discern between the soul and the spirit of man. Of course, he created man, uh, you know, which gives him uh, a better position to discern from. And then Freud and Jung and Maslow and all these guys, B.F. Skinner, they come along and say, no, I can discern what's going on with man by observation and by philosophy, and here's what I think is happening. Uh, and then they come up with whatever psychology and psychotherapy uh, that they... and and. We follow that. We think, well, okay, you know, these guys are they're smart. They went to college. Uh, you know, the Bible's an old book. What did Jesus know about psychology? I'm probably not very much. I bet they didn't even study psychology in those days. You know, now we know all about it. And we study monkeys and monkey colonies, and uh, you know, at the University of California Riverside, and which I have told you that before, haven't I? I sat. You'd sit there for hours, you know, watching macaque monkeys. Uh, humiliate each other in, 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 uh, in, you know, they're not even in the wild it might even have been better to study them in their natural habitat but they're in little cages the size, there's like 27 monkeys in a room the size of this and a bunch of people looking at them you know, and think Ooh, yeah, right yeah. And, and why? so that we can understand human behavior because it's comparative psychology since, since everything evolved then we're seeing you know, evolution and all of this and then uh, this is what people believe today. And when you're in church talking about this, we all laugh and it's like, oh yeah, those people, they're so foolish, you know. But then you get outside and that's what everybody believes and they think you're the dummy. You believe in God? I just watched the History Channel prove that there is no God in between commercials, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I saw all those smug, the and they're theologians who don't even believe in God, so why should I believe in God? And, and so this is what Paul's talking about. He says, you don't want God to rule over you you become unthankful, your foolish heart is darkened, and you begin to spin because you still have this problem. What's wrong with people, and how do we get along, and all of that? And so you come up with these weird ideas. Verse 23, and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds and four-footed animals and <coughs> excuse me, creeping things. Man in his own wisdom still tries to fill the eternity in his heart with worship, and by, uh, to do that he invents his own religions. Man becomes an idolater, he fashions gods that resemble himself, and then settles for gods in the image of lesser creatures. 
if you're smart, which you know some of these smart guys are, you have to think, okay, um, if, if there is a God, the only way I could know him, since I would be a lesser being, would be for him to reveal himself to me. I couldn't really figure out who God is just by thinking about it. I can see a witness in creation and follow that, but, you know... These guys say, no, it doesn't matter. We're just going to think about who God might be and we're going to invent God and we're going to, you know, do... And so we start by making God in our own image and then that deteriorates into the image of animals and beasts and four-footed things and all these other kinds of things that people worship. By the way, historians verify an important fact. Ancient cultures begin with the worship of one God and only later begin to worship many gods. Herodotus, the famous Greek historian of the 5th century B.C., said that the earliest Persians, for example, had no pagan temples or idols. That came later. The 1st century Roman scholar Varro reported that Romans had no animal or human images of a god for 170 years after the founding of Rome. Lucian, a 2nd century A.D. Greek writer, made similar statements concerning early Greece and Egypt. The 4th century Christian historian Eusebius declared that the oldest peoples have no idols. So our idea is that people were living in caves like the Geico cavemen, you know, and that they were writing things on the walls and creating little, you know, they were really ignorant uh, individuals who worshipped, you know, little objects and stuff. Uh, And then as we evolved, we created these fantastic religions and, you know, figured things out. And in reality... uh, if you follow the Bible story, there was the knowledge of the one true God, which is in most cultures, uh, and then they devolve away from that. They say, yeah, we don't want to follow that, and you end up with idolatry on some level and uh, human religion. And this is just what you would expect from Paul's analysis, and it is actually the opposite of what you would expect uh, from things like the theory of evolution. Now, Uh, He turns now to what we would call man's wedlock. Wedlock is the pledge of marriage within God's blessed boundaries. This most cherished of a loving creature's purposes for his creatures is in wreckage today, just as described in these verses. So verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, the truth of God Paul seems to be referring to is the sanctity of marriage. Now, I say that because the discussion here about sexual perversions depends upon there being a standard or a measure for proper sexual expression among human beings. And I think it's clear that Paul was thinking about the Garden of Eden because he refers to their believing the lie. Uh, Not just a lie. He doesn't say they they were deceived. He says they believed the lie. The lie is a reference to what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the Garden. He gave them a specific lie that they could be like God. And so Paul is thinking about the Garden of Eden. He's thinking about God's standard for uh, human relationships between men and women. And then he's going to talk about how uh, society perverts these as they move away from God. Uh, And you can see that a society has moved away from God 
because of the perversions in that society. Now, obviously, you know that God's first commandment to Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply. What he meant by that is stated in Genesis 2.24 when he says, uh, you've heard this hopefully at every decent wedding you've ever been to, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so the standard here is monogamous heterosexual marriage. That's God's purpose and wisdom for his creatures. should be no surprise then that once his creatures have rejected his right to rule over them, that monogamous heterosexual marriage gives way to the various perversions listed here. So you're dealing with a person who has the witness of God, and then he says, I don't want God to rule over me. And the most important institution God set up, in fact, the very first thing God did, he didn't build a university, uh, you know, he didn't, he didn't establish a government uh, or anything like that. The very first thing God did was marry Adam and Eve and say, this is good. You know, this is what I want. I want a man and a woman to get married uh, and to live in this relationship and to bear children. And this is what everything is going to be built around. And so what Paul is saying, so, so this, guess what? This is what's going to go when, you know, when, when people really have thrown off God and they say, we don't want him to rule over us. We don't want to know anything about heterosexual monogamous marriage. We want to do whatever we want to do sexually. And so God says... Um, uh, it says here that God gave them up. Now, this doesn't mean that God gave up on mankind. It means he gives man over to the consequences of their decision to reject his rule and to rule themselves. He gives mankind over to what they desire, but then they must bear the awful consequences for themselves. Some of you, again, I, you know, the parenting analogy is good in some situations, and you know, over the years, I've, some parents have had to just kind of watch as their wayward children have had to bear the consequences of their decisions. So, you know, especially as the children get older and move into adulthood, it's like there's nothing I can do. There's no safety net anymore. I can't help you, uh, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, whether you're the one that calls the cops and says, I need you to bust my son or whatever, you know, that kind of a thing. And they have to bear the consequences for their actions. It's, it's, and, and really, um, you know, that's what God says. He goes, okay, if you're, if you're going to throw off my rule, I'll continue to reach out to you. I'll continue to try and bring you back to myself, but I'll also let you have your way. And, and so what we're reading about in, at the end of Romans 1 is the way of man uh, who has given up on God. Now, from the sanctity of marriage, they are given over, it says, to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Now, because the discussion of homosexuality that immediately follows, we tend to overlook that this verse is likely referring to heterosexual perversions in the sanctity of marriage. Fornication between unmarried men and women, as well as adultery by those who are married, they are just as sinful as what follows. The fact that these are so common in society so as to no longer shock us does not change their perverse nature. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, you know, we have a tendency, when we think of sexual sin, to think of the most heinous sexual sins, uh, you know, or, or ones that are really aberrant to us. Uh, and I'm not saying that anyone here thinks lightly of fornication or adultery, but I think in general, 
we don't think of fornication, sex outside of marriage by unmarried individuals or adultery. I don't think we think of it the same way we think of homosexuality and lesbianism. I think we some sort of think it's normal but sad. And, and the Bible says it's a perversion of marriage. It's a perversion of what God instituted. Every sexual sin is a perversion. And it just it kind of you know, shows me how far as an individual and as a society we've sunk that some things don't really bother us as much anymore. They, they don't shock us. You know, if, if somebody calls me and says, I think my son or my daughter is a homosexual, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, and, and rightfully so. I mean, you know, get out the tear rags and all. But, you know, people all the time are, ah, you know, I, just, I committed adultery. I, I just, you know, okay, let's not be doing that anymore, you know, and stuff. And, and uh, you know, I'm into pornography or I'm doing this and stuff. And so there's a whole area here of sexual sin that we're desensitized to that we don't think is quite as bad anymore. But, it, 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 you know, it is. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe it's because I grew up as an amoral idiot, uh, you know, in, in, I, which I did. You know, and, and I was, nothing was wrong as long as you didn't get caught doing it, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. <clears throat> but I think generally our society has gone in the direction of certain sexual sins are okay, that, you know, they're between consenting adults, that kind of thing. A lot of times people, maybe, you, you know, people, are, especially gals, they'll call and they'll say, you know, my husband wants a divorce and, and uh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight it. And I, I said, well, no, you're not. Well, what do you mean? I said, this is a no-fault divorce state. You know, you, you, if you want a divorce, you're going to get one. You know, they'll suggest counseling and they'll do all of this stuff, but you're going to get a dissolution of marriage. Well, my husband's committing adultery or my wife's committing... Okay, no one cares about that. You, it's not like when I was growing up... How many of you remember divorce court? You ever watch that one? You, you have to be really old to, to remember. We used to watch divorce court every week. You know, it was like this fake show where the, and you had to sue your, your husband or wife for divorce and, and a, you had to show cause and hire private detectives and, you know, there had to be a reason for you to get divorced uh, and, and there was always a twist at the end, you know, and stuff. But, you know, and, and if you could prove adultery, you know, that was the, now no one really, you know, the courts don't really care that much about that. It, you know, nobody's going to be shocked when you stand up and say, my husband's been committing adultery. All right, well, that, that may be sad for you, but let's talk about how we're going to split this marriage up, uh, you know, because I'm still looking at the mathematics of it, and, you know, because that's what it comes down to. It comes down to the mathematics of who gets what, and it doesn't matter who's wrong, uh, you know, or who's committed sexual sin. Uh, and so I'm just kind of going off on this a little bit because I want to resensitize all of us to the fact that sexual sin is bad. And sexual sin is that which is sex outside of the sanctity of marriage. And it doesn't matter if it's fornication, adultery, or homosexuality, or any of these other things. It's sad and bad. So, now we do get into a discussion of homosexuality. Verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman... Burned in their lust one for another, men with men, committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Now the verses speak for themselves. All male and female homosexuality is vile, it's against nature, it's a burning lust, and it's shameful. It's interesting to note Paul wrote to a culture where homosexuality was accepted as a part of life for both men and women. 
For some 200 years, men who openly practiced homosexuality, often with very young boys, ruled the Roman Empire. At times, the Roman Empire specifically taxed, approved homosexual prostitution, and gave boy prostitutes a legal holiday. Legal marriage between same-gender couples was recognized, and even some of the emperors were married to other men. Does Paul single out sexual sin, and especially homosexuality, because it is the worst sin? Or because once a society gets there, it's through? I don't think so. Here's something C.S. Lewis said. I think it's insightful. He says, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he would be quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. A cold, self-righteous person who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute, but of course, it's better to do neither. Uh, And so I like that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I love the guy. Uh, He was a little aberrant in some areas, but I love the guy. He says, so basically he's saying, it's not that sins of the flesh are are the worst sins. He says, really, sins of the spirit, what we would call sins of the spirit are far worse. Pride and uh, covetousness and things like that, you know, that ruin the heart of man. Uh, You know, just look at a Pharisee in the New Testament. I mean, they were the only people that Jesus really had harsh words for. Everyone else, he was offering forgiveness and love and grace. Pharisees would come along and he said, you know, you guys are whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful on the outside, but inside you're full of dead, rotting men's bones. And, that's, and so those are the kinds of sins that are really evil. So Paul isn't saying this is the worst thing that people can do. He's singling them out because they are so obviously unnatural, they illustrate the extent to which men devolve apart from God. He says, if you look at your society and you see all of these things going on, I mean, it's hard to see what's going on in the heart of man, but you can see these things, and this is evidence that men have left the rule of God and are ruling over themselves. Fornication, adultery, and homosexuality are sins. To say that this is an antiquated view, that we know better now, is exactly the kind of professing to be wise when we are fools that Paul was talking about. Acceptance of these behaviors isn't something to be proud of, as if we are smarter than our ancestors. It's something to be ashamed of because we've become more foolish. It's actually good news that they are sins because it means you can be forgiven and delivered from them. Listen to this passage from 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. through 11. Paul writes and he says, Don't you know that the, unrighteousness will, or the unrighteous excuse me, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites... Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Do we think thieving is something you are born to do? Somebody is a thief. Do we look at that person and say, it's not his fault he was born that way. That guy is a born thief. Do we think that coveting should be legalized? Uh, I covet. I want to form the coveters society. I want to get coveting. I want to have a constitutional amendment legalizing covetousness because after all, we all covet. Is extortion to be expected? You see, the Bible puts sexual sins and drunkenness 
in the same category with these other behaviors. And it's ridiculous. You say, well, no, nobody's born a thief. But we're quick to say, oh, but they are born homosexuals. Oh, maybe they are born adulterers then, fornicators. We're, you know, I'm not saying that we, not that we don't have sin and that we have a tendency to these things, but you know, the argument today is that people are born that way. There's nothing they can do about it. But the Bible, if it's the Word of God, which it is, he lists things like homosexuality with things like being a thief. Same breath. And so God's saying, there's no difference in my mind. This is a sin, that's a sin. These are things that you do that are against nature, that are wrong. And the good news is, some of the Corinthians had been homosexuals and thieves and drunkards and extortioners. And he says, but they're not anymore. They were washed and sanctified and justified. They got saved, is what happened to them. And so God says, yeah, this is what people do. It's not that they were born that way, it's that they're sinners, Sure, they were born dead in trespasses and sins, and that's how they express it. And then they get saved, and I deal with that by washing them and sanctifying them and justifying them. And so it's good news. So people who are upset when you say that homosexuality or these other things are sin, they ought to be happy because now something can be done about it at the cross of Jesus Christ, and they can be set free. And so it says here, though, We're still talking about those who are deep into this. It says they receive in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. I don't know if you realize it or not, but there would never have been sexually transmitted diseases if mankind had followed God's purpose for marriage. It just wouldn't be. I don't care, you know, all the arguments about, you know, who can get this and who can get that. Um, There just wouldn't be any of these terrible diseases. Uh, You know, I remember... the whole battle over sex ed in schools, you know. Uh, I remember the sex education that I got as a young kid in the sixth grade. You know, the school nurse would come in, they'd show these movies and stuff. And the impression I got was that antibiotics would cure anything. And so what did I care about, you know, sexually transmitted diseases? And being an amoral person, I didn't care if anybody else got a sexually transmitted disease because they could just go get antibiotics too, you know. Now, things have changed and... Uh, you know, <laughs> some of these diseases, people are saying, well, they won't kill you, but you can't kill them. Uh, and so you just have them for the rest of your life, you know. And then, of course, there are STDs, uh, which, by the way, we used to call them venereal disease. Now they're STDs. Uh, softens the blow, I guess. But uh, <clears throat> they, they will kill you. And so that's what the Bible is saying. It's saying, look, you know, ultimately, this is just what happens. People say, well, that's God's judgment on homos, you know, AIDS. No, this is just the natural result. This is what happens when you go outside of God's way of doing things. This is what happens to the human race. Because you weren't made to have these kinds of multiple partners and multiple experiences and all of that. And and it's just part of the fabric of what it means to be a human being that eventually these diseases are going to crop up. God didn't sit in heaven and think, I have to invent a disease to really nail these people. He just said, what I'm going to do is just give you over to what you want to do and this will be the natural result of your natural behavior. It's not God's fault because he said if you stay within, if you play in this playground, it'll be great. You have all the fun you want and you won't get any of these things. They won't, they won't, you know, you won't need the antibiotics and later on when they won't work, it won't matter. And, and so, so it isn't God's judgment in, in the direct sense. It's just God giving you over. And so the next time somebody blames God, say, no, it's your fault. 
God said, stay married. You know, be in the sanctity of a marriage relationship. Uh, um, You didn't. And so now you're suffering from it. Now, we go into a complete devolution of society, verses 28 through 31. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They're, They're not purposeful for a human being. Filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. This is a perfect description of our contemporary society. You could take anything listed here and probably find statistic after statistic to verify that our society and the world is increasing in these things with no end in sight. As a final indictment, Paul says in verse 32, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but approve of those who practice them. Now here's something all men everywhere for all time are said to know. They know that these kinds of behaviors are deserving of punishment by a holy God who is revealed to them in creation and in conscience. Nevertheless, they did not like to retain this knowledge of God. They willfully reject all that God has revealed to them rather than respond to it. Do the same. It says uh, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Do the same doesn't mean behaving exactly the same way. It's talking about having the same attitude of pride regardless of the specific manifestations in behavior. It's like the C.S. Lewis quote. Those whose sins are spiritual do the same as those whose sins are fleshly. They reject God and they go their own way. Worse than the activities is the attitude of a society in approving it. Now, you most often hear this verse and this concept applied to sitting in front of your TV set or going to a movie where you're entertained by activities that are ungodly. And and preachers will tell you, you're approving of that behavior by watching this movie. You're seeing some of these things happen in this movie, and so you're giving your approval to them. You're, you're getting into it. Well, I'm not defending that, but let's get real. If that were the case, you wouldn't be able to read large portions of the Bible because the Bible has a lot of this kind of stuff in it. Now, we do need to be careful regarding what we watch and expose ourselves to. Don't get me wrong. But I always think of it in terms of intent as well as content. What... In other words, some of the content might portray evil behavior, but what is the intent of the piece or the author or whatever? With the Bible, the intent is to reveal the grace of God, the mercy of God, things like that. So you have all these really sordid events in the Bible, you know, terrible things that people are doing to each other. But the that's the content, but the intent is for God to reveal himself as a gracious, loving uh, God uh, through it all. And so, yes, we have to be careful for other reasons, uh, you know, for, you know, the Philippians reasons of whatever things are pure and lovely and all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember, and I, I don't want to put a trip on anybody because I, I watch television. All right. Uh, w- but when the kids were little, we, we didn't have a television. And for years, we watched very little television after that. Uh, and, you know, now they're on their own if they want to watch television, you know, and stuff. And, I'm, and, every, and I don't like to talk to people about movies because I don't want you to know what movies I watch. And I don't want to know what movies you watch, you know, but uh, because, you know, we all have our different tastes. So we do have to struggle with this thing. You know, I mean, am I, you know, 
do I really want to take this in? But that's not what this verse is about. This verse isn't about, you know, the total abstinence of, of content that would be uh, in a, a bad vein or else you wouldn't be able to read the Bible. A better understanding of this verse has to do with society as a whole passing laws that condone these activities that give approval to them. And we've done that in America, and we will as a populace continue to do it unless we return to God. It was right to oppose homosexual marriage. Just realize that we've already passed laws legalizing or at least condoning and giving tacit approval to many other sexual sins. I'm admittedly naive when it comes to both politics and the law. I'm no expert on politics uh, and how things work in that arena and I'm no expert on the law, but I do know that in a state like California where there's no-fault divorce, it gives a tacit approval to committing adultery because adultery is no longer a crime and it no longer costs you anything. And nobody cares about it in the, in, in the, in when you go to court. As I said earlier, when I go into court and I say, I want all the money and I want the kids and I want, the, I want everything because my spouse committed adultery, nobody goes, oh, awarded. They say, well, all right, let's see what the math says. You know, let's, they have a, and they do, they have a computer program that figures out this is your salary and that's your son, this is your retirement and that's yours. All right, here we go. How about this adultery thing? Yeah, what about it? We don't do that anymore. And stuff, and so uh, yeah, we we need to be careful, but we have to realize, you know, while we're fighting this, we're already pretty far downstream. We're already headed to the falls of Roros, as it was. I mean, we're going over, you know, with Boromir and all that, you know, and stuff. It's we're we're heading downwind pretty fast, uh, and so so just bear in mind, I'm not against fighting our devolution as a society on the level of the laws we pass. We have to do that, but the f- political fight never deals with the root issue. We must be about the sharing of the gospel so that we can say to folks, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, And that's the ultimate goal. Not that you can't do this, and I'm happy that you can't because, you know, it's against God's rules. That's fine. But I want to be able to say to somebody, you've been washed and sanctified and cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You've been saved by the blood of the Lamb and set free from those things uh, to live a life that you were intended to live to fulfill the purpose of a human being. Uh, and, And what a glorious thing that is. Amen? Amen.